Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them with me for the last time, hopefully not the last time ever, but uh, the last time for a while in this context, uh, to the book of Nehemiah. Today marks the end of our study of uh, this great book, a study that began, many of you don't remember, uh, but it began last October, uh, our study of the book of Nehemiah did, and it's been a, uh, a great book full of great truths. Of course, I'm going to say that about every book that we go through, but Nehemiah has extolled again who God is, who his nat- what his nature is, his mercy, his grace, his work in our lives. Nehemiah has challenged us once again about the gospel call, about who we are as God's people, about who we are to be and who we, uh, what we are to do. Some of the truths that we've looked at in this long, several-month study are going to show their heads once again today as we close out in Nehemiah chapter 13. Before I read, maybe you've had the experience, I certainly have had this experience recently, where you're reading a book, for those of you who aren't book readers, think movies, or you're watching a movie, and you get to the end and you wish, ah, I wish I hadn't read that last chapter. That last chapter just didn't do it for me. Or maybe the last five minutes of a movie that you're really enjoying, you wish had ended five minutes earlier. Well, perhaps as we come to the end of Nehemiah, that is how we feel. Nehemiah chapter 13, the end of our story is no Hollywood ending. It is no happily ever after. As I said last week, some of you are going to wish last week was the end of the story. But by the Holy Spirit's guidance, it's not. It's not the end of the story. And I, of course, am going to tell you that it's good that it's It's good that it's not the end of the story because we need this. We need Nehemiah 13. We need not not just to hear its truths again to our oh-so-forgetful hearts, but we need it because we don't live in a world of happy endings. Hollywood endings are not our life. That's why we like them, because they're so not us. We live in the world of the Psalms, right? That's why I love the Psalms. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. How long, O Lord, will you let the wicked prosper? O Lord, my God, my sin and my transgressions are ever before me. My strength is sapped because of them. That's the world that we live in. Those are the emotions that come to us. And so, in a sense, the Scriptures, they end our study with some refreshing realism, to be honest. Refreshing realism about what our life is all about. So listen as I read Nehemiah chapter 13. 
On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah talking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, came back to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites. And as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, 
I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them. Oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for again bearing with a long uh, passage this morning uh, as we read God's Word, but really a passage that needs to be, I think, considered together. Last week, those of you who are here remember that God's people rejoiced over the completion of the walls of Jerusalem. It was a wonderful celebration of joy and of gratitude over what the Lord had done. As we come to chapter 13 now this morning, we fast forward in our time frame and therefore you need to fast forward in your thinking. Not just weeks, not just months, but you need to fast forward years. You see, Nehemiah has served for many years as governor. He has returned to Persia for a time. We don't know exactly how long he was in Persia, but now he is back. And he's back to, to, in a sense, I guess, survey all that his prayer and all that his effort and all that his administration had worked so hard to accomplish in the city of God. And of course, as we think back, those of you who have been part of this study, as we think back upon Nehemiah, you'd expect that from the eagerness of the reception of God's Word in chapter 8, from the deep contrition for sin and repentance that were characteristic of chapter 9, from the covenant renewal that was chapter 
10 from the the celebration of joy and and gratitude that was chapter 12 that Nehemiah would come back and not just will all be well in the city of Jerusalem in the midst of a revival, but God's people will still be on this spiritual mountaintop rejoicing in who God is and who they are as His people. And yet... What Nehemiah finds is something oh so different. What Nehemiah finds is neglect. Apathy for the law and for the ways of the Lord. Three truths for us to consider this morning out of Nehemiah chapter 13. Three truths, kids, and the first one is this. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. The enemies of God never quit. Be vigilant. The enemies of God never quit. Now let's talk about vigilance for just a moment. Kids, vigilance means to be watchful. To watch out. So you could say that we're saying, watch out. God's enemies never quit. Watching out the neighborhood watch program is in the news a lot these days, isn't it? In fact, if you Google neighborhood watch program, you get not the Wikipedia article on it, although it's there, but no, you first get at least three, if not four, if not six articles from national news agencies about a certain neighborhood watch program in Florida. See, neighborhood watch programs, by definition, are supposed to be designed to protect people and possessions by the watchfulness of their residents. Conscious and cautious about the potential for evil, there is a commitment among those in a neighborhood to be watchful, to be vigilant, to watch out. But we all know that that's easier said than done. That it is so easy for us to be lulled into thinking that we are safe. That we are secure. That there is no harm to be concerned about. It was no different for God's people then than it is for us today. Let me explain. Our our passage begins today with three verses that kind of serve as a a setup for the rest of the passage in many ways. See, verses 1 through 3 there of Nehemiah 13, you can look at it there with me. Verses 1 through 3 speak of the discovery of this command of the law of God. A command that we know is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And it's a command that the Ammonites and Moabites specifically are excluded from the assembly of God's people. Why, you ask? Well, let's just say Israel and these people, they had history. They had issues. And we can't go into the depths of the issues. They're hinted at there in Nehemiah chapter 13. If you want to read more about the issues between the Israelites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. Turn and look later at Numbers 22 through 25. 
But simply put, these people groups had a history of mistreatment of God's people. Nehemiah here speaks to that. He alludes to it. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, because he's stressing again the fact that God demands purity in his worship. God demands purity in worship. In the house of the Lord, this was essential. It was a reflection of his very character. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that the character that we're reintroduced to in verse 4, Tobiah is an Ammonite. Tobiah is an Ammonite. And this is important to know. Why is this important to know? Because Tobiah is not just in the assembly of the people of God. He has moved in to the temple. Tobiah has moved in to the temple. You see, the priests not only have not been vigilant about the purity of worship, of God's worship, of His house, but they have allowed an enemy of God to move into the very heart of worship. You remember Tobiah, probably. We were introduced to him way back in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 2, he appears, and then he appears again in chapter 4. He's the, the sarcastic comedian that said, if a fox jumps up on those walls, it'll break down. He was jeering at God's people as they did God's work. And then chapter 6, he escalates his opposition. There's a bit of a conspiracy going on with Tobiah, remember? He writes some written threats against God's people. You see, Tobiah was not a friend He was an enemy of the servant of the Lord. He was an enemy of God's work and of the success of God's people in Jerusalem. And yet here he is. He has worked himself through family relationships. He has worked himself into the very heart of the temple. A room reserved for the sacred utensils for worship for the tithes and offerings of God's people, is now his his personal condo. This is problematic. And we don't know Tobiah's motive for being there. I think we can be sure it wasn't honorable. This wasn't the result of some deep repentance in the life of Tobiah. This was Tobiah further seeking to undermine God's work and God's worship. It was subtle. It was sly. But this was a threat. And this was not just a a threat. This was a disgrace to God's house, to God's purity. God's people had not been vigilant. God's leaders had not been vigilant vigilant. And what you need to see this morning, what we all need to be reminded of this morning was that this didn't happen overnight. 
This, is, this wasn't one of those situations where the, the kids are looking out the front window as mom and dad back out of the driveway. Then they drive away and they raise their hands. They say, yeah, party! God's people were not watching Nehemiah ride out of the city gates off into the sunset and suddenly thinking, okay, how can we rebel? How can we rebel against the Lord? No, it began with the little things. The little comfortable compromises and and justifications. Tobiah is not that bad. There is an extra room in the temple. I mean, giving's down, so there's not as much stored in there. We got a little extra space. It's a temporary arrangement. I'm sure it'll be fine. Instead of vigilance, instead of standing on God's truth, in an uncompromising manner, they waffled. They compromised. And yet what does the Scriptures say to us? The Scriptures remind us this morning that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you believe that? No, really, do you believe that? As you sit here in comfort, as you sit here in freedom and safety, do you believe that you are in danger? I'll say this, there are brothers and sisters of ours in Christ, in South Sudan, in Nigeria, in other places of the world, who believe this. Because they live it every day. They are not safe. And of course, when I talk to you about this, when I talk about the enemy, I'm not necessarily talking about the Edmonds Police Department or the FBI coming in here and breaking up this meeting. We have no fear of that, and that is a blessing. But we have an enemy. Though that fear is gone, we have an enemy. An enemy that wants to devour you. A spiritual enemy of evil. So the challenge comes to us this morning. What are those places where we have failed to be vigilant? Where we have let our guard down? I I try to keep your attention for 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. But you and your kids go from this place and you are preached to for the rest of the week. You are preached to by the ideology of your neighbors and your co-workers. You are preached to by the television, by movies, by the books you read, by the music you listen to. You hear sermons all week long. Do you know that? Do you recognize that? Are you vigilant? That you have an enemy that wants to devour you through that? I don't want to scare you, but I do want to scare you. God's enemies never quit. My wife caught me just last month. She caught me in a lack of vigilance. 
We're a musical house. We love to listen to music. Lots of music comes into our house. Lots of music comes into my iTunes, then goes to the iPods of of children in my house. And she caught me as she heard one of our children singing lyrics. What in the world are those lyrics that you're singing? And she turns to me and says, And I had no excuse. I had failed in my vigilance. It's a good reminder for me. It's a good reminder for us this morning. God reminds us to be vigilant. Well, second truth for us this morning. Be vigilant. Don't underestimate your weakness. Be vigilant. Don't underestimate your weakness. You see, this is not just a lack of watchfulness concerning outside threats among God's people. There's also a lack of vigilance concerning the inside. Remember these statements? Verses, chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Chapter 10, verse 31. We will not buy on the Sabbath. Chapter 10, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What happened to these bold declarations of commitment and resolve? What Nehemiah finds is an undoing of all that God's people had resolved to be about. First, there is a neglect of support for God's work. Nehemiah comes in, where are the Levites? Why aren't they in the temple courts? Why aren't they working? Well, because the Levites have gone home. They've gone to their fields. They've gone to make some money so that they can provide for their families because God's people have failed to give to the work of the Lord. And then there's the Sabbath. Nehemiah sees farmers processing grapes. He sees merchants selling their goods and transporting them from the fields. And he's frustrated because history is repeating itself. And and he laments in verse 18, did you not learn anything from the past? We are in this predicament because your fathers did exactly what you are now doing. You're forgetting. You're failing to be vigilant. And then there's the marriages. Nehemiah finds a people intermixed with the idol-worshipping people of other nations. And that was the issue. Not just that they were people of a different color or skin type, but no, they were idol-worshippers. They denied the one true God. And God had called His people to be set apart. And here the children have lost their heritage. One generation is gone already because of the people's lack of vigilance. They had underestimated their enemy's resolve. They had underestimated their own weakness concerning their own resolutions. What brought about this disintegration of resolve? If we think about those first two things, 
What brought about the resolve to, to stop giving? To stop giving of their time and their offerings and their money? Well, we can speculate. I think it was about money. I think it was about self-sufficiency. I mean, one, of, one of two things either happened in the life of God's people. Either, either things had gotten so good that they just felt self-sufficient. There's no more dependence. They felt good about what they had accomplished. And it was them who had accomplished it, right? So we'll just press on. We'll forget about God. Or, or maybe times were tough. Maybe they were feeling the, the financial pinch. Maybe it was the opposite. And so they lost faith and they said, we've got to do it on our own. That, that 10%, well, that could really go a long way towards the, feeding the mouths of my children. I better hold that back. God probably wants me to hold that back so that I can focus and get more things done. I need that 12 hours on the Sabbath. I need that extra work. See, either way, whether it was out of abundance, whether it was out of lack of faith in lean times, this was a heart statement by God's people about who God was and about whether He was trustworthy. It wasn't, the, it wasn't about the outward statements. God doesn't need their money. But it was about their hearts and their attitude towards Him. And then there's the marriage issue. We may want to, to say that this is like a Romeo and Juliet situation. Nehemiah just doesn't have a romantic bone in his body. I mean, let the two star-crossed lovers be together, Nehemiah. What's the big deal? And yet we know that wasn't it. Even those marriages were likely arranged and ordered that there might be some social advancement, that there might be some better situation, that God probably didn't know what He was doing when He limited the pool of potential mates to just Israel. I'm sure He meant me to be happy and prosperous. And so we can push that a little bit. There was forgetfulness. There was uncertainty that God knew what was best. Is God really good? Is His law really good? Is His law really for my good? Those were the questions. Those were the questions. They underestimated their weakness. And so, what about us? Do our hearts easily grasp when we get in those circumstances that we don't understand, do they easily trust in what God is doing? No, they don't. And yet the Scriptures remind us of the promises of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your Pass. Yet so easily we want to help God out. We need 
so desperately to have a realistic view of our own hearts. Whether it be finances, schedules, relationships, we need to be vigilant against that slippery slope that says you need to do it on your own. Because that's anti-gospel. That's not the gospel that we preach and that we proclaim and that we sing with joy. The gospel is that you can't do it on your own. But somebody has done it all for you. And He calls you to just trust in Him. The one who has done everything for you to be reconciled with God is the one who cares for you each second of each day. And He says, turn to Me in your weakness, in your circumstances. Don't fix your eyes on them. Fix your eyes on Me. On Jesus. One more thing for us to think about this morning. These first two points came from the actions of God's people and what we can learn from God's people. But I've skipped Nehemiah's response. And you know that, don't you? Because you've been waiting to hear and to have me talk about Nehemiah's response to all these actions of what has gone on. Well, that's our third truth for this morning as we close out. And it's this. Faithfulness is passionate and prayerful. Faithfulness is passionate and prayerful. There's no doubt a defensive stance that we need to take in our lives. We're realistic about our enemy. We're realistic about the state of our own hearts. We're on guard and vigilant against them. And yet Nehemiah in our passage, he is put into a place where he can't just be defensive. He's got to be offensive. He's got to lead. He's got to react. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to extol Nehemiah too much. The commitment and the, the resolve that Nehemiah has in responding to God's people is a gift. It's a gift of grace. And it's the Lord working through him and accomplishing his purposes in the life of God's people. But his example does teach us something. It teaches us something first about passion. I mean, how do we handle these scenes? First, we have literally, Nehemiah is throwing couches. He's throwing coffee tables out of the temple into the temple courtyard. He's probably yelling as he's doing this. And then we have him literally beating and pulling the hair of men who have disobeyed God by marrying foreign women. Is that the example that we're supposed to follow? I mean, what is going on here? Chill out, Nehemiah. What in the world has got you so worked up? Are you just having a bad day? Did you have too much coffee this morning? What is going on? We ask these questions, and I think this is key. Nehemiah, where is your politeness? Nehemiah, why can't you just be nice? Surely, you are overreacting. 
The great theologian J.I. Packer said it best. He said, there are more important things in life than being nice. What he means by that is that there is a place for righteous anger. There is a place for outrage over sin. See, Nehemiah was not a man with an anger management problem. No, he was a man who was passionate about the glory of God. And that passion burned within him by God's grace. Now, I don't deny, and no one in this room would deny, that when we hear about him beating and pulling the hair of individuals, that that is harsh. We live in a different time and place. And so part of what we have here in Nehemiah 13 is a cultural difference that we need to get around. Yes, it was harsh. Yes, it was shock and awe. But much of the Old Testament, much of God's law and His burning against evil and sin was harsh. I mean, think about some of the consequences for sin being stoned to death by your neighbors. That's harsh. Being banished from the life of God's people. That is harsh. I mean, in light of those things, getting a little beat down isn't that big of a deal. No, but it was. It was. Nehemiah reacts, and he reacts violently. He reacts in a way that culture would have heard loudly. Remember, this was a theocracy. God's law was the law of the land for the Jew. For us to respond with this kind of vigilance would not only be with, against the New Testament, but it would be against the law of our land and therefore contrary to God's design. But is there a place for this? Yes, And no, I'm going to say. I mean, God still calls us to be passionate about His glory, but not through the consequences and not through the harshness of the law. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. What does John 1 says? John 1, 17 say, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Our passion is grace. But even gracious truth can be harsh at times, can't it? I mean, let me give you a slightly different angle to illustrate. If my five-year-old runs towards oncoming traffic and the only chance that I have to save her from the car is to lunge and tackle her and scrape her knees, break her, her bones, I am going to do it with all that's in me in order that she might be saved. See, I'm passionate about her life, even to her own harm. I'm passionate about her life. God was jealous. God is jealous for His glory. And Nehemiah, as His servant, shares that passion, and he's not afraid to call sin, sin. He's not afraid to to wake God's people up through shock and awe. 
And does this remind you of anything else? Does this remind you of anyone else? Yes. For we have recorded for us Jesus going into that temple many years later and in righteous anger over what God's people had done to the house of prayer begins to make a mess of things. We're going to look at that passage. We're going to look at that passage next week. But let's just close with this. What do you get angry about? When was the last time you were angry? And what was it about? Do we get angry about things that are the Lord is passionate about? Are we afraid to call sin, sin? Some of us have people in our lives who are down, going down a path of sin and we're afraid to speak into their lives and call them to faithfulness. May God give us the passion and glory that He gave Nehemiah. Well, one more thing. Let's just look real briefly at the faithfulness of Nehemiah through his praying. Through his praying. I love that Nehemiah ends in this way. Many of you will remember how it began with Nehemiah falling to his knees upon hearing about the state of Jerusalem and praying and crying out to God in humility. Then throughout this book, throughout this chapter, we see this thread of prayer. Verse 14, 22, 29, 31. Remember me, O my God. Remember this, O my God. Remember them, O my God. See, these aren't lengthy prayers. They're not prayers of self-centeredness despite the repetition of me. These are prayers of dependence. These are prayers that are saying once again, everything I have done, Lord, everything I am about has been for Your glory. And so for Your glory, remember it. May it be done. Don't let it fall apart for Your name's sake. He's prayerful. He's dependent. Jesus told His disciples in Mark 8 to watch and pray. He tells us to do the same thing. To be vigilant against the enemy without, the enemy within. To strive for faithfulness. To strive for passion. To be prayerful. Great truths for us to be reminded of this morning. Why? Do this. How can we do this? Because the one who has called you is faithful. It's because of the faithfulness of God, which is really the theme of Nehemiah. God's patience, God's grace has leapt off the pages of the book of Nehemiah. God doesn't give us what we deserve, but He bears with us again and again. And again, that we might live for Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word this morning, how it speaks to our hearts, how it speaks to our lives. Father, we recognize this morning You call us not just to outward forms, 
but you call us to inward transformation. And so we once again cry out asking your Spirit to do your work in us. That in those times of plenty, in those times of lean, in those times of safety, in those times of trouble, that our eyes would be fixed not upon ourselves, not upon our circumstances, but on Jesus, the faithful one. Oh, Father, give us grace, we pray. In that great name, the name of Jesus, amen.